Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Some of you may not know the word glossophobia, but you probably have experienced it at some level. It is a a word that describes a fear of speaking. It takes the word glossa, the word for language or speech in Greek, and the word phobos, the word for fear. And so obviously you have the idea of the fear of speaking, particularly speaking in front of groups of people. It's a rather common fear and a rather common experience for a lot of folks. They are called on to do some sort of public speaking or to speak uh, in some situation, and they are filled with anxiety. Their heart beats rapidly. Their mouth dries up. They have butterflies in their stomach, or they feel some sort of stiffening of their, their muscles and sweating all over. Their energy is drained. All of those kind of physiological reactions come because they're just imagining all the negative consequences, all the negative things that could come out of this episode, speaking in front of people, the mistakes they'll make, all the way, all the miscommunication, mispronunciation, all those things just fill their mind. All they can think about is the failure and, uh, and all of the negative feedback they're going to get so that it constricts their mind. They can't even focus on what they're trying to say anymore. That is, uh, as I said, common for some people in the area of public speaking, it describes that, but it could maybe in a similar way describe what some Christians feel when they're trying to speak for Christ, even if it's not publicly. Whenever they're called upon or are presented with an opportunity to speak to someone about their faith, about their belief, about the gospel, they are overcome with anxiety and fear and apprehension and all of those kinds of things. It sort of terrifies them because they cannot get over their sense of inadequacy, of wanting to do a good job and wanting to represent the gospel that has so impacted their life, but not quite knowing how to find the right words, to say the right things, and to be able to have the kind of impact they want to have. Well, this kind of fear is not new, and it's not it's not representative of you if you are someone who experiences that. This has been common for all Christians for all time. From the very beginning, from the very first uh, believers who were entrusted with the responsibility of taking the gospel wherever they were going, there was always the possibility of them being overwhelmed and overcome by the fear of the task, the fear of the responsibility that they find themselves in some means, incapable or in some situations, even unwilling to do it. They are unfaithful witnesses. They're disobedient witnesses. They're well aware that they carry a message that the world does not welcome, and they are messengers that the world will not welcome. They know that many people do not want to hear what they have to say, have no interest. And in fact, beyond that, not only are they not interested, they are antagonistic. All of those things then fill your heart and mind more than the mandate to be faithful. Well, none of that was unexpected by our Lord when he gave his commandment that we take the gospel to all the nations. He knew it's a real possibility. 
And he knew that it would be something that was a hindrance for a lot of people. And he wanted to prepare his disciples to know how to deal with those kinds of things. And that really is the topic of our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25, as Jesus is preparing to send out his 12 apostles on their inaugural mission. They're going out for the first time ever, apart from him, to preach the gospel in all the places he sent them. And one of the things that he wants to prepare them for are these anxieties, these fears, these phobias that they might have to be able to speak. He wants to prepare them to remain faithful and to remain willing and prepare them to always be ready to give a defense, to be able to give an answer, to be able to give a testimony as he so commanded them. And so he makes these efforts to prepare them to face all the challenges of the opposition that they're going to encounter Now, I want you to listen in just as I read this for you and listen to some of the ways in which the Lord is preparing his disciples for this this mission. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated for all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Disciples not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, as we started to see a couple weeks ago, this comes within a context. The whole of Matthew chapter 10 is really a whole discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples as he's sending them out. You remember back in chapter, excuse me, in verse 1, he had called all of his disciples to himself, and from among them he chose 12. And the 12 are the ones that he gives this specific commission to go out. And as he sends them out, there are some unique elements to this mission. He gives some unique uh, limits and some unique authority. Remember back in verse 6, he limits them to just the sheep, sheep of the household of Israel. They're only supposed to go within the territory of Israel. They're not even to go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans or, in, or any of that stuff. And in this particular mission, he entrusts them with some extraordinary powers of healing and exorcism and even raising the dead. And we talked about some of the reasons why the Lord gave them those kinds of authenticating powers. But as we noted as well, that while this is limited to a specific mission, 
At the same time, there are principles that extend beyond their initial mission and go into their future missions or into their future ministry. They extend beyond this particular event and are applicable to everything that they do. And not only that, they become applicable for you and me. There are principles here that extend beyond those initial limitations and extend to all those who would be faithful in proclaiming the truth of the gospel. We noted that because even in verse 16, excuse me, verse 18, Jesus speaks to them about being dragged before governors and kings and Gentiles. So we know it's going beyond the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And even down in verse 20, he speaks about how they're going to be given the power of the Spirit to speak on the day of confrontation or the day of opposition. And as we know from other places in the gospel, that the Spirit is not something that will be given to them until the Lord ascends back to be with the Father. That was a special gift that was going to come to them after the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. So, Reading the passage, it becomes clear that Jesus is giving them instruction not only for this mission, but for further missions. Not only for this time of ministry, but for later ministry. And as I said, because of that, there becomes a lot of points of application for you and I as well. And so as we look at this and we look at the kind of instruction that Jesus is giving, particularly as it relates to their fears and their phobias and their anxieties and their inhibitions, as it relates to the opposition that they're going to face. There are principles that help you and I tremendously as we prepare our own hearts for what is sometimes a very difficult task of simply proclaiming the truth, simply being faithful witnesses to Christ. And there are a number of principles here that he gives to these disciples to prepare them for this kind of opposition that gives them, hopefully, the readiness and the willingness to share the gospel whenever the opportunity arises. Now, the first one that I want you to take note of is found in verse 16, and we could simply uh, call it being cautious in your testimony, being cautious in your testimony. This is a instruction that he's giving them in light of the overall context where they will minister. He explains it by comparing them to sheep in the midst of wolves. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, we're familiar with some of these images. We hear about sheep when we read the scripture, and we know that they're used a number of different ways to communicate a number of different characteristics. Sometimes sheep are... uh, are uh, presented to speak about how we're a part of God's fold, like we're, uh, uh, we belong to him. Sometimes sheep are, are uh, presented because of how gentle and mild they are. Sometimes sheep are even presented because of their overall need to be led. They're, they're, they're not particularly intelligent animals, and so they have to have someone lead them to places to eat and somewhere to lead them to places for water. All those things are true of sheep, but, but that's not the particular emphasis here. What the, the characteristic that Jesus is highlighting here is the fact that sheep are, are basically defenseless animals. They have no natural defense. They have no armor. They, have, they don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. They're not very fast. There's very little that they can do to protect themselves. 
And so it's, it's unusual to find sheep straying outside of their, their fold very far. And, and certainly it would be unusual to find sheep going intentionally into a den of wolves or into a territory of wolves. Even more unusual would be for a shepherd to send his sheep into the midst of wolves. And yet that's exactly what Jesus says he's doing. He is sending his sheep. He says, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. He is doing that. And you might respond to that or read that and think, well, that's not a very careful shepherd. That's not a very caring or loving shepherd. That's not something shepherdly to do. But you would be wrong if you thought that this represented some sort of lack of concern on the part of Christ. In fact, everything in the passage speaks against that. Everything in the context tells you the exact opposite. He's very concerned. He tells the disciples, for example, when he sends them out with no gold or silver or copper in their belts, that they're going to be cared for, their needs are going to be met, that God's going to provide all of their needs. He tells them down in verse uh, verse 22, I think it is, um, or I'm sorry, somewhere down here in the uh, uh, passage, He's, he tells them, it's verse 30, that even the hairs of their head are numbered, that they're not to fear because they're more valuable than the sparrows that God knows about, that not one of them falls to the ground without God taking notice. So everything in the, po- in the context tells us that God is very concerned, that he is watchful, that he is mindful of you and, and all of his disciples. None of this is an indication that God is flippant in his responsibility or his duties as a shepherd. He's sending you out. He's sending these disciples out and you and I out as sheep in the midst of wolves. But that doesn't mean that he's abandoning us or that we're somehow left alone or somehow we're left unprotected by God. He's using this, however, as an image to help you and I understand the level of dangers that face us every day. We are in a hostile environment. We are in an unwelcoming, unfriendly environment. If you are taking upon yourself the task of proclaiming the gospel of God, you cannot be naive to the situation. You cannot be naive about the environment you'll be in and you can't be not can't be naive about the people that you'll face. It's not to say that everyone is equally ravenous. Uh, not everyone you might even fully describe as a wolf in the sense that they are aggressive and wanting to devour you. But everyone that you meet certainly has the potential of that. They're unregenerate meaning that they resist God in their heart. They hate God's law. They love unrighteousness. They're hostile towards God because of all those things. The scripture tells us that. They're resistant to him, unsubmissive to him. They may be rather passive as long as there's not too much pressure on their life. But once you begin to declare to them the judgment of God, the accountability before God, the consequences of rejecting God, once you increase that accountability, any one of the people that you encounter in this world could easily turn into one of these wolves. 
and they become willing to attack not only God and His character and His name, but His church and His people and His messengers. These are the ones that Jesus warns you will drag you as messengers before the synagogue leaders, before governors, before kings. They will accuse you. They'll accuse you falsely. They'll seek to destroy you. Many of them will harbor hostility towards you. They'll do whatever they can to silence you if you are coming and declaring their state before God. Jesus understands all this. He understands that the threats are real and he understands that these hostilities are out there and he wants you to understand it and so he wants you to be prepared. He doesn't want to send out his disciples. He doesn't want to send out his messengers. He doesn't want to send out his church in a naive or ignorant way to the hostilities that you'll face. And so in light of all that, in light of the dangers, in light of what's around you, in light of those kinds of potential hostilities, he wants you to understand the need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Two two more animal images this time, not of sheep and wolves so much, but animals that evoke, evoke other kinds of characteristics. Serpents, particularly in the ancient world, were considered to be shrewd. They were considered to be cunning animals. They slithered along the ground almost unnoticed in most context they didn't draw much attention to themselves in fact they were quite good they are quite good at blending into their environment and that gave them the ability many times to sneak up on their opponents sometimes before they ever knew it but the but the point is that they knew they understood how not to draw a lot of attention to themselves how not to draw unnecessary attack against themselves And not only that, but Jesus is calling us to be innocent like doves. Harmless would be another way to translate this. Doves are some of the most harmless creatures you could imagine. They're almost without caution. They are known to be unsuspecting, getting right up next to Uh, Not only other animals, but even humans who are posing dangers to them, fowlers who are looking to capture them, they'll walk right up to them. And so Jesus is probably picturing the idea here of being sincere and genuine, untainted by suspicion, untainted by cynicism. Plato uses this word, by the way, to describe those who, are, who don't allow the misdeeds of others to infect them and grow in them like a cancer. So in that way, being untainted, um, unmixed, as some people translate it. So here you are, you're well aware of sin, you're well aware of even the condition of the human heart, you're well aware of all those things, and yet you will not allow those things to infect you, that, to create within you a level of suspicion or fear or any of those things that cause you to draw back, to stay away, to remove yourself. You are not only Willing to engage, but you don't present yourself as any kind of threat at all. Not in your person, not in your demeanor. Jesus wants you to be careful. 
because you understand the threats. You understand the potential. You understand that the people that you're around could potentially turn on you as wolves would turn on you and seek to devour, seek to ravage you. And that awareness should give you a level of caution when you engage with the world. And it should lead to a level of tactfulness, a level of of, uh, gentleness, even as it leads to a level of engagement. Paul tells the Colossians this in Colossians chapter 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Let your speech be gracious. Let it be thoughtful. Let it be considerate. Don't let it be unnecessarily offensive. Don't let it be pugnacious. Always sensitive, always thinking about Each person, Paul says, thinking about how each person needs to be engaged with the gospel in their particular situation, their background, their their interests, their concerns, their questions. You're taking into account all of those things. An effective evangelist considers how they can present the gospel in, in the context of all of those situations so that they can make the gospel if you want to say it this way, palatable, seasoned, tasteful. It's not to say that you're aiming to mold the gospel to the particular demands of people. You're not a people pleaser in that sense. That's not your ultimate goal. You understand that there will be times of offense, of the message of the cross. Paul understood that as well as anyone. He himself declared that he, if he became a pleaser of men, he would no longer be a servant of Christ. But the very same Paul who says that in Galatians chapter 1 also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that he, he describes his ministry as giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry may not be discredited, but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God. Or he says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, give no offense either to Jew or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they might be saved. He tells Titus that in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, beyond which, uh, which is beyond reproach in order that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. So the apostle over and over and over again was admonishing people, be gracious, be kind, be gentle with your words. Be prepared to be able to give this kind of a gentle response. You need to be wise and you need to be harmless. You don't want to be unnecessarily threatening. You, want to, you don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. You don't want to make yourself unnecessarily an enemy. Now this means being gracious means that you're attentive. You're attentive to the needs. You're attentive to the interest. You're attentive to the questions, the thoughts that are in the minds and hearts of those who are around you. 
And you're constantly looking for those opportunities to present the gospel within the context of the questions that are already generated. This is one of the best ways to not be, uh, if you will, not be unnecessarily uh, uh, um, abrasive or unnecessarily pushy with the gospel, but just to under, help people understand in whatever perplexities that they're in, whatever situations that they're in, that the gospel is the answer for their difficulties. You encounter people day by day who are complaining about society and talking about the world and talking about how, you know, our nation is going through whatever it's going through. And you might just ask them, why do you think things are so terrible? Why do you think people do such terrible things? Just elicit that kind of conversation that takes you to a gospel context. When someone asks you, what do you do? Instead of saying, I'm a scientist, say, I'm involved in researching how God's universe functions. Just work that in there. See what they say, right? When someone's telling you about some good fortune, ask them, why do you think God's blessing you in such a way? Bring God into their consciousness. Help them to begin to reflect on those things. When someone talks to you about difficulties in their marriage, you can tell them, well, I once thought about marriage that way until God taught me his principles of love. When they're struggling with their kids and talking about how difficult it is to raise them, tell them, you know, we learn so much about the loving discipline of a father by the way that God loves us as parents. All those things, all those natural conversations of life, there are ways for you to present the gospel, to, to speak of the gospel that are wise, that are, that are uh, harmless in that sense, that are unintimidating. Proverbs 15.2 says, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. If you're going to be wise, you're going to have to think about that, Jesus says. You're going to have to think about how to add persuasiveness, how to make knowledge more palatable, how to make it gracious, how to make it seasoned. This is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. God might perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, he says. So quarrelsome attitudes and quarrelsome approaches, he's warning Timothy, often get in the way of the work of the gospel. What God demands of us, what he asks for us is gentleness in our words that might perhaps break through to the hearts of others. Obviously, that doesn't mean that there aren't dangers. We're walking in the midst of wolves. We're doing spiritual battle all the time with the forces of darkness and heavenly places, as Paul says. But still, even when we are engaging in the battle for the truth, we have to do so in a way, Paul says, that is kind to all. Never ungracious, never harsh, never abusive, never overbearing, easy to talk to, easy to approach, sensitive to the needs of others. Now you might be thinking that, well, if I do, if I try that, people are going to walk all over me. If that's, that's, that's the way I'm going to, to speak, I mean, they're going to, 
absolutely abuse me. Well, maybe so. That's why Paul says, patiently enduring evil. That is a part of it. It's not tit for tat. It's not they hit first, I'll hit back. It's understanding that no matter what the context, no matter how much you're mistreated, no matter the fact that you are in the midst of ravenous wolves, you still are expected to be patient when wronged. Not looking for some way to lash out, not looking for some way to get into an argument, not looking for some way to best your opponent or your spouse or your children or your parents, your friends and your co-workers. Not quarreling, not fighting, not defending yourself, not self-justifying, not filled with anger, even at unrighteousness when it confronts you. But gracious, harmless, and wise. Now, none of that implies shy, and none of it implies retreating. It doesn't imply weakness. It doesn't imply cowardice. It just simply means that you understand the dangers. You understand that the people who are around you have rejected God. They've resisted God. They've resisted His law. They've they've hardened their heart to some extent, the Scripture tells us. And you understand that they can be unnecessarily provoked. And so what you want to do is you want to be as tactful as possible, even as you are as faithful as possible. And you trust God as you face the enemy. You know He has sent you. He knows that He has sent you in the midst of wolves. And so you're not unnecessarily provoking people. Nevertheless, you understand that you will suffer opposition. It's going to happen. It's unavoidable, which is the second point that Jesus tells you here. Be courageous in the face of persecution, verse 17 and 18. Not only do you need to be cautious, but you need to courageously step into these environments where you're going to face hardship. This is a world that John tells us lies under the power of the evil one and is dominated by Satan and his forces. You are surrounded by people who are walking according to the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is work at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2 says. It's a system that is, that is geared, it is programmed, if you will, to not welcome your message. And you shouldn't be surprised by that. So he tells his disciples here in verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So prepare yourself for it. Be aware of it. That's basically what the word beware means. It's a word for mindful. Be mindful. Be cognizant. Pay attention to this. Be aware of this. Open your eyes to this. Go in with eyes wide open. You're going to have to acknowledge this. It shouldn't surprise you. As Paul tells Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse. So it's going to happen. It is inevitable. 
And the reason behind it all is the world's hatred and resistance to your Savior and to your God. That's what Jesus says in verse 18. They're going to do all this to you for my sake. That's where the animosity comes from. It's because the world hates Christ. It's on account of His name. All who desire to live godly. Or another way to say that is all who choose to identify with Christ, with His righteousness, with His priorities, with His kingdom, with His truth, with His person, with His name, all those things. They're going to do this because of you. Now, it's going to be labeled all kinds of other things. People will explain it sociologically or culturally or politically. They're going to label their resistance to you in all those other terms, psychological terms, cultural terms. But Jesus wants you to be clear. It's because of your identity with him. And the world isn't going to necessarily claim this. They're not going to own it. They may not even recognize it within their hearts. All they feel is the frustration. All they feel is the animosity. All they feel is the dislike. Because what you're doing is you're shining a light on their vulnerabilities. You're shining a light on their accountability. You're shining a light on their, their sense of personal freedom before, uh, before a holy God. That they can do whatever they want and not be held accountable to Him. And that's not welcomed. And it's not appreciated. And so the animosity comes. It comes under all kinds of names. But it comes, Jesus says, because of me. Because of your affiliation with me. Because of your love of me. Because of your position in me. Because of your allegiance to me. Because of your belief in me. The more you seek his glory, the more you pursue his righteousness, the more you abide by his word, the more you will be attacked. Remember, this is what Jesus says in John 15. The world, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to say, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if you are conformed to the world, if you're of the world, if you're of its values, if you imbibe its goals, if you if you walk by its particular uh, uh, morals, if you value its treasures to the extent that you do all of that, then the world's just going to recognize you as one of its own, he says. But because you're not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If the, if you he says, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him. They do not know me or him who sent me. So the people that you're around today who are on all sort of external sort of factors, appear to be just sort of upstanding citizens going about the world, you know, worldly treasures and the worldly pursuits that they're going until you come and you begin to speak to them about their accountability before God. You begin to speak to them about their need for Christ. And then suddenly, suddenly this sort of ravenous wolf mentality comes out. Jesus is saying, if that person had encountered me, 
2,000 years ago, they would have crucified me. So that's why they're going to turn against you. They'll turn against you the same way they turned against me. And they will drag you, he says, before their synagogues. That's not talking about religious uh, operations. The synagogues, of course, were the place where Jews gathered for worship, but they were also the courthouses of the local towns. So they're being dragged before the, 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 the elders and the leaders of the community to be judged. Or in the sake of the Gentiles, he says, you'll be dragged before kings and before governors. So, so it might start out or it might manifest itself in some ways individually, but it's also going to manifest itself institutionally. You're going to be confronted by governing authorities. God established government for the punishment of evil and the praise of those who do good, but that's not always the way government functions. There is no perfect government that, that fulfills all of God's designs the way God designed it until Christ returns. And so what you have is you have these massive institutions of governmental authority all around us who are armed and who are powerful. And when you begin to preach the gospel, Satan uh, redirects the hearts and minds of those people to wield that power against you and against God's messengers, to stifle the message, to oppress the message, to shut it down, And it's labeled all kinds of things, but Jesus says, ultimately, it's because of me. It's because of my name. And so you have to know that. You have to be aware of that. I'm sending you out and be aware. They're going to do this to you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer. But you do it anyway. You go anyway, because this is his command, because this is the gospel of life, because those who are attacking you need to be saved from eternal hell. And when you go, Jesus says, thirdly, verse 19 and 20, be confident in the words of the spirit, be confident in the words of the spirit when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Jesus understands that whenever you get into these situations, this opposition, that there is a tendency for you to be overwhelmed with fears and with anxieties and with uncertainty. You want to represent Christ. You want to talk about how the gospel's impacted you, but you sometimes feel overwhelmed. And he wants you to understand in the midst of all that, that it's really not all on you. He wants your mind to not be filled with all the possibilities of failure and all the potentialities of you making mistakes and not certainly answering all the objections and all the questions and all the sort of things that are thrown at you. What he wants your mind to be focused on is the sufficiency of the spirit through the word of God. Now, that's what he's, dis- what he's telling his disciples here. When you are called before these tribunals and before these governors and before these kings, don't be anxious. I am going to be there speaking through you. That's what he says. The Spirit is going to speak through you. Now, this is, you need to 
make note of this. This is different than the promise that comes later on in John 14 and 16, which is the upper room discourse. John 14 and 16, Jesus promises to send the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to bring to mind for the apostles all the things that Jesus has said to them, and it's going to enable them to be able to write the Scripture. They're going to be inspired by the Spirit. They're going to write down the Word of God, and it's going to be inerrant, and it's going to be delivered to us. That is a ministry of the Spirit. He inspires certain writers so that Timothy says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 that no scripture is a matter of someone's own private sort of view of the world, their own private interpretation of the world. It doesn't arise from the will of man. But each man writes as he's moved by the Spirit of God. That's how we got the scripture. But what Jesus is talking about here is not inspiration of scripture. He's not saying that every time you're face with an opponent, you're going to have brand new revelation and you're going to have brand new inspiration and, and some brand new message is going to come out. That's not the point. The point is that the Spirit is going to fill you and you're going to be able to speak at that moment from the Word of God and the Word of God is going to be sufficiently powerful to be able to give a defense for itself. You have to get that into your mind as a believer. You have to grasp the truth that the, the Word of God is self-authenticating. The Word of God is capable of defending itself. It's capable of defending itself because of the Spirit of God that empowers the Word of God to do that. And so he's telling these disciples that this is going to happen. Somewhere down the road, they're going to be drugged before uh, kings, before governors, before Gentiles, before courts. And in that moment, if they, will, if they will believe and trust that the Word of God, that the Spirit of God within them is sufficient, then giving, uh, uh, if you will, giving themselves to that work of the Spirit in their hearts will provide them with a sufficient answer at the moment. And of course, this is what we do. We we trust that. Uh, this is going to be something that was true not only of the disciples in this original mission, but it's going to be true of them even when they go out to the Gentiles. And by the way, this is all speaking about a ministry of the Spirit that wasn't even going to happen until Jesus ascended back into heaven. Remember, the Spirit wasn't given. So this kind of defense that comes to them is a defense that's going to be there post-Pentecost. It's going to be given to them, and the Spirit who's given to us is going to be there with us, and we're going to be filled with the Spirit so that we can be able to speak in those moments the Word of God. We're going to hide the Word of God in our hearts, and out of the Word, we're going to be able to speak, and the Word is going to be able to defend itself. Now, this is what we see again and again and again. Paul, tell, talking to the Corinthians over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, speaks about the power of the gospel message. In fact, Romans chapter 1, Paul describes it this way in verse 17. He says, uh, excuse me, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So Paul says, I'm not going to shrink back from preaching the gospel because the gospel is inherently powerful. It is powerful in and of itself. Or over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, describing his own ministry again, he talks about this power in verse 17 uh, when he says there, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So I'm not worried about eloquence. And I'm not worried about rhetoric. And I'm not worried about uh, about answering every single sort of sophisticated argument that's thrown my way. I don't want to do all that because otherwise... The gospel of Christ is emptied of its power. He says in verse 18, For the word of Christ cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. What's he saying there? He said, you're going to, you're going to communicate the message of the cross. You're going to communicate it to your spouse. You're going to communicate it to your children. You're going to communicate it to your boss, to your coworkers. And many of them, it's going to be foolish. They're going to hear it. They're going to reject it. It's going to be ridiculed. They're going to mock it. It's going to be labeled as foolish. But at the same time, there are going to be others who hear the exact same message and they're going to walk away stunned by the power of God. I see it all the time. I mean, I I can stand and I can preach here from the pulpit a message and some people are out there yawning, barely keeping their eyes open. And there are some people who are listening to that and thinking, this is the power of God. Remember that, by the way, if you have opportunities to share the gospel with someone somewhere out in public. You might be speaking to them. They might be rejecting. They might be opposing. But you never know what little ears are listening in. What little ears are being impacted as you're talking about the glory of Christ, as you're talking about the sufficiency of his work, as you're talking about the hope of the resurrection. And the very person that is listening and is ridiculing and saying that is folly might be standing right in front of the person who's listening and saying that is the most powerful thing I've ever heard. This is what Jesus wants you to understand. This is why Paul, when he came to the Corinthians, said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Not meaning that he just told the same simple Calvary story over and over and over again, but just meaning that when he spoke, he grounded everything in the all-sufficient work of Christ. Paul says, I did that in chapter 2. I did that so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul knew very well the dangers of trying to impress people with intellectualism, rhetoric, sophistry. It might produce some sort of glamour or glory for him in the moment, but it was always going to lead people in the vulnerable position of being subject to some more clever, more touching, more impressive presentation by someone else. His goal then wasn't to 
wrap them into his own rhetoric or his own persuasiveness. He decided to know nothing among that. In fact, he says, I was with you with fear and trembling as I preached the gospel to you. They would say, remember later on in 2 Corinthians, they would actually describe Paul's ministry as his, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. I've listened to that guy. It's unimpressive. Unmoving. Folly. But Paul said, I would rather do that because that message which is rejected by so many as fully is powerful to others. It's powerful to others. So Jesus is saying, when you're drugged before these kings and you're drugged before these governors and you're brought before them and you're supposed don't worry. Don't worry. Just believe that the Spirit of God is going to speak through you and He's going to communicate what He wants to communicate to who He's going to communicate if you'll just submit yourself and yield yourself to the truth of of Christ, the truth of the Scripture. The truth of the Spirit. You give yourself to that. You give yourself to that and you will be prepared. Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Don't be overcome by all that stuff. You be ready though. And you be willing. Because the persecution, the rejection, the opposition, the ridicule is coming. And you do it. You go and you speak as graciously, as wisely, as cautiously as you can, but you speak the words of the Spirit. Well, there are more principles that Jesus gives his disciples here that we're going to have to get into, Lord willing, next time. Lord, we're grateful for the promises that come to us by you and by the Spirit. We're thankful to know that we stand in even our weakest moments and our deepest failures, absolutely redeemed, absolutely solidified in Christ. And we're thankful to know that it's not even our personal successes which determine the outcome of our evangelistic efforts, but it is you with the all-sufficient Spirit speaking through us. Give us then courage Give us the kind of ease and conversation that makes us gentle, cautious, wise, tactful, understanding that it's not our tone of voice or our volume, our rhetoric or our cleverness or any of those things that saves, but it's you. And we pray, Father, that you would save those who are here this morning who do not know you. They're sitting and listening to the power of God. May you penetrate their heart. May they drop their resistance. May they surrender their life to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.